Well, good morning, church family. It is so good to be with you guys today, whether you are in the room or joining us online. I am so excited to be here with all of you. It is way too quiet in here. Are you guys alive, awake? Okay, all right, good. It was like funeral quiet in here a second ago. I preach better when you talk back, so I better hear some amens while I'm preaching today. Listen, if you're new with us, my name is Pete, and I have the honor and privilege of serving as the lead pastor here. And uh, it really is an honor. It's not just something that we say every week. We truly consider it an honor that you would take some time out of your busy schedules to be here with us, to learn about God's word, to worship our good heavenly father together. And uh, I, I really mean it. We love, love Sundays, love being together with all of you. And if you are online, uh, I want you to know that I pray for you every single day. Uh, I miss you and I can't wait to see you again in person, but I trust that you are doing well and continuing to take steps to grow in your faith. Before I dive into this week's message, I wanted to just, if I could, take a moment to encourage and remind my church family of the importance for you to register every single week before you attend. Uh, it is exciting to see the numbers increasing each week as more and more people are, are hearing about what God is doing in our church. Uh, but we have two desires. We want to stay safe and we want to stay open. And the registration system that we've put in place is the only mechanism that we have to monitor our building's capacity. And we don't see the seating capacity restrictions going away anytime soon. And so I just want to remind you and ask you to every week set an alarm on your phone if you have to for Wednesday or Thursday or Friday to just go online and register your family for the service that you want to attend. Because when we first got back into meeting in person after, you know, 17 or 18 weeks of being quarantined, we had more people registering than were actually attending. We had some attrition happening and there weren't quite as many people coming to church even though they told us they were coming. But in the last few weeks, that whole thing has kind of flipped. And now we've got more people attending than are actually registering, which is a good thing. But like I said, we, we want to stay open. We want to keep doing what God has called us to do, which is reaching people with the message of, of hope and salvation in Jesus Christ. So if I could just ask my church family to please, please, please remember to register every week before you come. We would so greatly appreciate it. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Amen. I want to start my message today um, with a statement that is not going to come as a surprise to those of you that know me very well. And that statement is simply that I love food. Like, I really love food. I would consider myself a foodie. Uh, and this has been passed down to my children. I am proud to admit that my boys have a very discerning palate. They are adventurous eaters. And, and there's something about food that kind of just brings people together. Have you noticed that? Like most of our important relationships in life happen, you know, kind of centered around food. There's meals involved with important relationships in our lives. In fact, you know, when you invite people over to your house, you usually put out some kind of a dish to share. This afternoon, I have my annual fantasy football draft. And my fantasy football league is called the Bean Dips. Because 20-some years ago when this league got started, they served bean dip, and it has become like this quintessential thing where every year at the draft, we serve the same bean dip, and that will be my lunch and dinner this afternoon. And I'm sorry in advance to my wife for what might happen in bed tonight after eating a bowl full of bean dip. <laughs> Too much information? Maybe? That, yeah. Didn't say that in the last service. 
But like when it comes to dating relationships, it's almost like you can't even consider it a date if dinner's not involved. We involve food in, in so many of the important things in our lives. When we go on vacation, you know, our favorite thing to do is go find new restaurants. My boys have said, Dad, get on Yelp and go find a good restaurant because they know that Dad knows how to eat. And it has turned into a pretty like expensive line item in our family's budget because my boys stopped eating off the kids menu years ago and they might only be eight and 10, but they eat like grown men. And it feels like we can't have a dinner with, for less than $100 these days. But that's like our favorite thing to do. I believe all of the important relationships in our lives kind of revolve around food in some way. Now they say that we should eat to live and not really live to eat. I'm not so sure I agree with that. I kind of live to eat sometimes. I go from one meal to the next looking forward to, what are we going to have? Oh, you know, we could go to this restaurant. We live to eat. At least I think so. And I don't know that God considers food just this dietary necessity to keep us alive. It's kind of been this way throughout human history. When you look even at the pages of scripture, food has always been kind of a common element to the significant moments in our journey. People shared meals together when they signed a contract or, ever, or entered into a covenant. Even the marriage covenant was a days-long celebration of food and drink. People shared meals to commemorate significant God moments as well. In fact, God was the one that initiated the Passover meal. It was a meal that they were supposed to share once a year to remind them of what God had done for them in rescuing them and redeeming them from Egyptian slavery and captivity. And then God provided manna for the Israelites as they were wandering through the wilderness. So food is much more than just energy for us. And personally, I think Jesus loved to eat too. When you read the pages of the Gospels, it's amazing how often you see Jesus breaking bread with people and going to dinner parties. Jesus fed the multitudes with bread. In fact, even in our culture today, one of the most famous paintings of Jesus is him with his disciples gathered around a table for the Last Supper. The very first moment that Jesus first reappeared to his disciples after he had resurrected from the dead, after showing them his hands and his feet, what did Jesus say to them? Hey, do you guys have anything to eat? Now, I just got to wonder, like, did the resurrected Savior, actually, was he actually hungry in that moment? Or did he just want to sit down and share a meal and share a moment with his closest friends? See, God didn't just come to earth to, or God didn't shout from heaven to show us the way. He actually came to earth to be with us and to share a meal with us. This picture of God and Jesus being a very communal and relational God. He didn't just come to teach, but he came to eat a meal. He came to be one of us. He didn't just come to point out how messed up we are. He came to have a meal with us. He ate dinner at people's houses. But not everyone liked the fact that Jesus would eat a meal with just about anyone. One of the things that Jesus was most known for is who he would hang out with and eat a meal with. And this really confused and upset the religious elite and the religious leaders of Jesus' day. See, because Jesus hung out with people of questionable character. And uh, the Pharisees didn't like that. They just couldn't understand why Jesus, who was a rabbi, supposedly a teacher, claimed to be the son of God, would hang out with such irreputable people. And last week when we kicked off the series, I kind of alluded to a trilogy of parables that Jesus taught in Luke 15, which is where we're going to be today. If you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, 
We're going to be in Luke 15, the first few verses. And uh, a parable is a short story that illustrates a spiritual truth. And in Luke 15, verse 1, we see that Luke records that the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. They were grumbling and complaining, saying, This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them? Now, isn't it interesting that people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus, and Jesus liked people who were nothing like him? And the religious leaders didn't like that very much. See, the people that would avoid going to church actually flocked to hear Jesus speak. Now, this phrase, tax collectors and sinners, is one that you will hear repeated over and over again throughout the pages of the Gospels. And it's this term that the gospel writers use to kind of um, label a subset of the Jewish population that, you know, these, the lowest of the low, the worst that society had to offer. These were the godless people, the lawbreakers, the adulterers, the cheaters, the liars, the crooks. And the fact that they broke out a separate category from sinners to label tax collectors shows you what they really thought about that group of people. Like tax collectors were considered the lowest of the low, not just by Pharisees, but by the general Jews of the day, because they were seen as traitors to their own people. Because of how large Rome's empire was, they, they wouldn't use their own soldiers to collect taxes. They would hire people from the regions that they were occupying to collect taxes from the people and pay it to Rome. And they didn't care how much money the tax collectors charged as long as Rome got their due. So the tax collectors were usually the wealthiest people in their region and the Jews hated them for it because they knew they were skimming off the top and taking more from them than what was really required. So that's, that's how tax collectors and sinners were viewed and, and Pharisees hated the tax collectors because they didn't adhere to the law. And the people who kept the law couldn't stand those who broke the law. Now, if we're honest, we're not a whole lot different from that, are we? Like, when you're doing something right, it gets under your skin when you see people doing something wrong. When, when you pay your taxes like you're supposed to and you hear about somebody finding a loophole or getting out of having to pay their taxes, it, like, that makes you mad. When you're on the thruway, you know, trying to wait to get off of an exit that you've been in line for for 10 minutes and some dude runs up, you know, drives up to the very front of the line at the last second, just cuts in, like, that makes you angry. Like, might or might not, like, throw up a digit and just wave, wave at them with one finger or have some choice words. Because when you're doing the right thing, it makes you mad when you see people doing the wrong thing. And that's how the religious leaders in Jesus' day felt. They prided themselves on keeping the law and couldn't stand the people who broke the law or didn't even try to keep the law. They wanted nothing to do with them wouldn't even associate with those people. And it doesn't say this in the text, but I wonder if the religious leaders weren't just jealous because these people were flocking to hear Jesus talk and not them. Just a thought that I had. Maybe they were just jealous because if it were me, I would think that, man, I'm, at least they're going somewhere because those people need some kind of message in their lives. Like, because I know y'all have never had that thought when you saw someone sitting in church and you're like, oh, I'm so glad they're here today. I really hope they're paying attention to this message because they need it in their lives. Like husbands and wives, you've never had that thought as you're sitting next to your spouse thinking, man, I really hope they're paying attention today. 
I would think that they'd be happy that they were going to hear something of of virtue. So I'm a little baffled by this self-righteous attitude that these religious leaders had that caused them to to be upset with Jesus and judging these people for for going to hear him talk. Because for me, I've always wanted to have a church where people who were nothing like me would come. I've always wanted to have a church where those who are not convinced, who weren't sure, who are disenfranchised and disillusioned would come just to hear a message of hope. And over the years, I've heard several modern-day Pharisees mutter things about people who've come to this church or the last church I served at in Columbus, complaining about people who were in church on Sunday but were getting drunk on Friday nights, in church on Sunday but maybe got high on Saturday night. And when people say things like that, when they grumble and complain, I honestly take it as a compliment. Because I think the churches should be full of people who have issues in their life but are looking for a way out, who are broken and messed up and just need hope in their lives. But there's always going to be modern day Pharisees who think people like that are just hypocrites for going to church on Sunday but then have sin in their lives Monday through Saturday. And personally, I don't think a person who is struggling with a sin issue is a hypocrite if they're looking for a way out. I don't think someone is a hypocrite if they want to believe in God but are struggling in a sea of doubt. And if that's you here today, you'll know if you come here long enough, like you hear me say this all the time, come with your doubts. Come with your skepticism. Come with your sin. Come with your issues because none of us are perfect. We're all just doing our best to try to get closer to Jesus. I say this all the time, but man, I could tell you multiple stories of people who were hung over or messed up or had brokenness or sin in their lives and came and met Jesus and he completely transformed them. So yes, I believe churches should be full of people who have sin in their lives. Now I will tell you this, that if you're still struggling with the same issues now as you were 20 years ago when you first met Jesus, you might have to question whether or not that salvation experience was real. Because Jesus doesn't only want to save you, he wants to transform you. Salvation should lead to righteous living. When you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you, the same grace that saved you is the same grace that empowers you to live a life that's pleasing and honoring to God. And if you're following Jesus, there should be a desire that grows in you to get rid of anything in your life that's displeasing to him because you know the price that he paid for your salvation. But that's a process. It's a process called sanctification that the Holy Spirit works on in our lives to to conform us more and more into the image of Jesus. But it's a process that the religious leaders of Jesus' day had no patience for. They believed that you had to clean up your act before you came to church, before you could be made right with God, which doesn't make any sense to me because that's like saying, well, you got to get cleaned up before you go in the shower. No, you go in the shower to get cleaned up, just like you go to God to get cleaned up. That's why you come to him. But they couldn't understand that he welcomed sinners and he ate with them. He didn't just talk to them or teach them in the synagogue. Then he would engage with them outside of church. Over and over again, when you read the gospels, one moment he's preaching or teaching, the next moment he's inviting himself over to somebody's house for dinner. Like Jesus was always that guy that was kind of imposing on others. Like, Hey, do you got a house? Cool, because I don't have one. 
I just kind of travel around and, you know, sleep at other people's houses. So I'm going to come to your house for dinner tonight. That's how Jesus was. And the religious leaders just didn't understand it. And if we're not careful, I think we can, even in the church, become like Pharisees who just wanted to judge Jesus for the people that he was hanging out with and sharing a meal with. How many of us have judged our brothers and sisters in Christ for hanging out with people of questionable character? Or we judge people who aren't even following Jesus for the sin that they have in their lives. Why is it that those of us who have received grace are often the ones that want to deny that grace to those who need it the most? How do we get to a point in our lives where we have forgotten that we were once the ones that he rescued and redeemed with his grace. And now that we've been following Jesus for 20 years and and we're trying to do things right and following all the rules, that we withhold that grace from the people who need it the most. Of all the things that we could do that would offend the heart of God, I wonder if having an attitude of spiritual elitism isn't one of the worst to him. I think God gets angry at people who claim to believe in him and claim to represent him withhold the grace from people, do everything they can to keep people who need God from God because of their attitude and their judgment towards them. I might be a pastor, and some people might call me a religious leader, but I sure as heck don't want to be anything like the religious leaders were in Jesus' day. If that's what it means to be religious, don't ever call me religious. Because all I know is that we've had far too many people in the church of Jesus Christ who are religious and not nearly enough people in the church of Jesus Christ who just loved and lived like Jesus. If Jesus welcomed sinners, then I think his followers should as well. If Jesus ate with sinners, then I think we should eat with them as well. When I look at the way Jesus rebuked Pharisees, I wonder if one of the most dangerous, deceptive And disgusting sins to God is the sin of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness that says, I'm so good and I'm so clean and I'm so holy that I don't even need what God did for me anymore because I've got it all figured out now. And we think we are righteous in our own eyes because of our own efforts to adhere to whatever it is we think that God expects from us. The Pharisees never saw themselves as sinners They were righteous in their own eyes because they believed that their efforts to perfectly adhere to and obey the law is what made them righteous before God. And I believe, if we're not careful, one of the greatest sins that a a Christian can struggle with, especially the longer you follow Jesus, is the sin of self-righteousness. When we start to look at others differently and judge others because, well, we've got it figured out and we're doing the right things and they're not. But listen, how you see yourself will determine how you see others. If you think your morality makes you better than a person who doesn't seem to have the same morals you do, you're always going to see their sin and not yours. If you think that having a faith makes you better than a person who doesn't profess a faith, you're always going to think you're better than they are and you're never going to see them the way God does. How you see yourself determines how you see others. Self-righteousness to me is one of the greatest sins a person can commit. And here's why. Because it removes the need for Jesus. It subverts the very gospel that we claim to carry. 
to think that we've somehow cleaned up our lives enough that we wouldn't associate with certain people strips the gospel of any power because instead of needing Jesus to do what he's called us to do, we're relying on our own efforts to adhere to the law and we think that's what makes us righteous. We think that's what makes God happy with us. And it strips the gospel of any power because we are no different than those who are still far from God. I don't know about you, but I need God's grace in my life every bit as much today as I did the day I invited him into my life when I was a child. I need his grace every day. Even the apostle Paul, near the end of his life, after all that he had accomplished, evangelizing the world, planting churches everywhere, wrote in his letter to his son Timothy, his spiritual son Timothy saying, I am the worst of all sinners. Paul never lost sight of what God had saved him from. I'm the worst of all sinners. But he said in another letter, I am what I am because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you today that I would not be who I am or where I am if it was not for the grace of Jesus Christ. I would not be on this stage and I would not be preaching to you if it was not for the grace of Jesus Christ. I might be in jail. I might be strung out on drugs. Who knows? I might be dead. But I am what I am and I am where I am because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And I pray you never forget what he saved you from and that every day you need his grace because how you see yourself determines how you see others. And if you see yourself as a sinner saved by grace, then you will have grace for the people in your life who need to know the amazing grace of our heavenly father. And honestly, one of the things I miss most about working in the secular marketplace is I don't get to share meals as often anymore with people who are far from God. Nowadays, because I work at church, I, the people that I go to lunch with are staff members, church people, and other pastors. And as much as I love connecting with anyone over food, I desperately miss just sharing a meal with somebody who's still far from God, who hasn't yet realized their need for him. I miss hearing their stories and looking for opportunities to be able to let them know just how crazy their Heavenly Father is about them. I miss that. I think if we aren't careful, we can become like the Pharisees if the only meals that we're sharing with people are with those who look like us and act like us and talk like us and believe like us and behave like us. It might be an indication of a self-righteous, pharisaical spirit, which I know is maybe hard to hear. I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. I'm just trying to let you know what I see in Scripture here. And Jesus purposefully ate meals with people who were nothing like him. And the religious leaders in Jesus' day didn't understand that. They muttered to themselves, saying, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. They knew the law, but they did not know the heart of God. The very law that was intended to point people to their need for Jesus. They missed the heart of God completely. So in response to their muttering, Jesus decides to tell them a story to illustrate the heart of God for the very people that they were repulsed by. And so as Christians, we need to know God's heart, not just for us. We know last week we are the object of God's relentless obsession, but we've also got to know his heart for the people in our life who are still far from him. And so in verse three, Jesus told them this story. 
If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one? That's what this series is called, for the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he'll call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I've found my lost sheep. That's what we do every weekend here. We invite people to come and rejoice with us over those who are lost that are being found. In verse 7, in the same way Jesus said, there is more joy in heaven. We've got to hear this. There is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than the 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Jesus told this story because of how the self-righteous Pharisees viewed the sinners that he was eating with. And he wanted them to understand God's heart for those sinners because their heart was nothing like his heart. And the sheep analogy that Jesus used in this short little story would have been one that they would have very easily understood. Partially because they lived in a very agricultural society and most people had some type of sheep or livestock. That's just kind of how you lived back then. But sheep was also the animal that was used in the Old Testament to represent God's people. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. So as he tells this story, the religious leaders listening would have known that when Jesus starts talking about sheep, he's not talking about sheep. He's talking about people. And he says to them, suppose you have 100 sheep and you lose just one of them. So you still have 99. That's pretty good, right? But for the shepherd, if all 100 are under your care, then you're responsible for all 100. And as a shepherd, you now have a dilemma. There's got to be this tension in you of like, do I stay with the 99 and keep them safe or do I go after the one? Leaving the 99 vulnerable and exposed. It almost seems reckless to leave the 99 in the open country where wolves and other predators might attack them to go after the one. But for the shepherd, the 99 are safe. The 99 are found. It's the one that needs help. And this is Jesus showing the Pharisees and showing us the heart of God for the one. While most of us would focus on the majority, God focuses on the one. Most of us would say, hey, 99 out of 100? That's like way better than I ever did in school. But God can't rest until the lost one is found. And if you think about it, we can be this way too, right? When you have something that you've lost, you become preoccupied with that lost thing. Like when you lose something of value to you, your wallet, your, your keys, your cell phone, like that's all you can think about until you find it, right? Where's my cell phone? Where's my cell phone? Where's my cell phone? You can't think about anything else. And when you're looking for your lost thing, you're not really pointing out the things that you still have. Like, well, there's my couch and there's that. No, when you're looking for your lost thing, you're not taking inventory of your found things. You're focused on the lost thing. Do you hear me? See what I'm getting at? And I believe our God is that way too. Didn't Jesus say when he gave us like personal mission statement, I have come to seek and save the lost? God's heart is for his lost sons and daughters. Now I want to be careful with this because I'm not saying that as soon as you enter into a relationship with Jesus that he doesn't care about you because he does. He is a good, good father that loves to give good gifts to his kids. We're told in scripture to cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for us. 
we're invited into an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father who is crazy about us and knows everything about us. I just think that too many of us approach God with our list of requests when we come to him in prayer and we're telling God all the things that we need and that we want. We don't spend time enough asking God what he wants. And he wants none to perish and all to come to repentance. So let me put it to you this way. Those of you who are parents in the room will probably identify with this. If you're a parent, you've ever like lost your kid temporarily, like raise your hand. Am I the only, okay, I'm not the only bad parent in the room. When our kids were younger, um, my boys are 10 and eight, but when we were new parents, I think Sammy was two or three and Isaac wasn't even one yet. He was still in a stroller. We were in JCPenney one time in the McKinley Mall and my older son, uh, Samuel decided it would be really fun to play hide-and-go-seek and hide himself in one of those round clothing racks that had all the clothes uh, hanging from it. And he went into the center of it, just sat down and thought, like, Mom and Dad are never going to find me here. And so after a couple minutes of, like, each of us looking at clothes, Kelly and I both almost at the same time, like, looked around and said, where's Sammy? Where'd Sammy go? And so we start calling him, but he's hiding, and he doesn't want to give away his position, so he doesn't say anything or respond to our calls. And so we're starting to get panicked. And while we're looking for Sammy, we're not worried, worried about Isaac because Isaac's not missing. Sammy is. Do you see that? Now, Isaac would have never said this because he was too young and he wasn't even talking yet. But if he was older, he would have never said, hey, mom, hey, dad, what's for dinner tonight? It's a great question if Sammy's not missing. It's a horrible question if Samuel is missing. You see what I'm saying? And I wonder if our prayers don't sound like that to God sometimes. Like, really, son? Really, daughter? Like, that's what you want to talk about right now? I mean, I love you, but didn't I promise that if you seek me first, I would take care of all of your needs? See, again, I want you to hear my heart in this because intimacy is one of my life messages. I, I hope you heard that last week when, when I said that we are the object of God's relentless obsession. But there is no intimacy with God without getting to know his heartbeat for the lost. I'm not suggesting that our Heavenly Father doesn't want us to ask Him for the things we need. He taught us to pray and ask for our daily bread. He knows the things we need before we even ask them. But in order of priority, didn't He tell us to pray that His kingdom would come and His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven before we ask for our daily bread? And His will is that all should come to know Him. There's no such thing as intimacy with God if you don't feel his heartbeat for his lost sons and daughters. The closer you get to God, the more burdened I believe that you will feel for the lost people in your life and the less concerned you will be about the things in your life that he has already promised that he would take care of. So we're searching for Sammy and I run up to the first lady I see and in a frantic, I just like, have you seen my son? He's about this big, blonde-headed kid. And she just looks at me, he's like, no, and continued shopping. And I was instantly irritated at her inactivity because something of value, value to me was missing. And I wonder if God doesn't feel the same way about us sometimes. I know he loves it when we gather and praise his name. But I wonder if he doesn't ever get irritated at our inactivity when something of value to him, a world that he so loves, people that are created in his image are headed for a Christless eternity unless we introduce them to Jesus. We've got to have a heart for the one. 
Jesus told the story of the lost sheep to show us the radical and some would say even reckless love that God has for his lost kids. And I believe his followers should have the same heart. This is how we should see the world around us. And you need to know that if you're going to call this church your home, this is the heartbeat of our church. We are a church that unapologetically and aggressively goes after the lost. This parable is exactly why the primary focus of this church will always be on the one who is still far from God because that was Jesus' focus. And like Jesus, we are for the one. That's who we are. That's what we're about. But if you're a part of the 99 and you've been a part of the 99 for a long time, it's easy to lose sight of this. And we, it's hard to come to grips that we would be for the one because as part of the majority, we feel like, well, what about us? What about my needs? What about my wants? What about us? And I just got to tell you that if your focus is on the 99, if you're looking for a church that exists just for you, I don't know how else to say it except this might not be the church for you. You might not last long here because we are always going to be aggressively seeking the lost. Now, don't get me wrong. We care about everyone here, believers and non-believers, and we try to create environments where people can grow in their faith and in relationships with others. Our mission statement here is to know and follow Jesus step by step. We know that we are not called to make converts. We're called to make disciples, people who follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And we will do everything we can to help you grow in your faith and take next steps, but we can't help you grow without helping you realize that if you're gonna follow in the footsteps who would leave the 99 to go after the one, then so must we. That's who we are as a church. And you need to know that. So we got to be careful that we don't make the church about us because the moment we do that, it stops being about him because his heart is for the one who's still far from him. And some people don't like it when I say this. Some people don't agree with this statement. But if you're a Christian, listen, if you think the church exists for you, you're wrong. Because if you're a Christian, you are the church and the church exists for the world. We've been tasked by our Savior with the mission to go and make disciples of everyone, all of God's lost sons and daughters who are still far from him. And if we're going to live like Christ, then we need to have his heart for our neighbors, for our coworkers, for our classmates, for our friends. Scripture says all of heaven throws a party when one sinner comes to repentance not over the 99 who are righteous and and are already found. There's more joy in heaven over one lost person who comes to know the love of Jesus than over the 99 who never strayed. And so to make this practical, maybe the challenge for us today is to open our eyes and find the one that Jesus would share a meal with. If I could be so bold and ask to like issue a homework assignment to you this week, it would be, to think of a person that you could invite over for dinner. Or better yet, be like Jesus and invite yourself over to their house for dinner. (laughs) And share a meal. Just get to know them. Oh, but what if they ask questions? What if they want to know what the Bible says about this and I don't know all this? Take the pressure off of yourself and just ask them questions about their life. Like get to know their story. 
I wonder if that isn't why Jesus was so intentional about sharing meals with people. Because it reminded him of why he came. These are the people that I came for. And he got to hear their story. It connected him with people who were hungry. And I'm not just talking about hungry for physical food. We have people around us every single day who are starving and hungry to fill a void in their lives that nothing or no one will ever fill apart from Jesus. God made every single one of us with a God-shaped void. And in John chapter 6, there was this time when right after Jesus did the miracle of multiplying the loaves and the fish, people thought it was really cool and thought that he would be able to do it again. So they followed him the next day into the next town. They're like, Jesus, you're going to make more bread? And Jesus says to them in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus connects this idea of eating bread to spiritual hunger to help them understand how starving our soul can be without him. And he says that he is the only thing that will ever be able to satisfy that hunger. And then he says in verse 37, all those the Father gives me will come to me. And listen to this. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. That means no matter what you've done, he will never drive away. No matter how far or distant you feel from God, he will never drive you away. No matter how dark your thoughts have been, Jesus will never push you away. God's heart is for the one and so is ours. And if you're here this morning and it's been a while since you have felt burdened for the lost people in your life, can I challenge you to ask God to impart his heart to yours? And maybe the first step to developing a heart for the one is to share a meal with someone in your life who still doesn't know how amazing the grace of God is, who haven't yet tasted and seen just how good God is. Heavenly Father, I pray right now for your church, your bride. And first of all, Lord, I just feel led to ask for forgiveness, Lord, for any self-righteous attitude that we've allowed to creep into our hearts as we've looked in judgment on those who aren't getting it right who've got sin in their lives, who are messed up. We look at them, we joke and say, man, they're a hot mess. But Lord, they're a hot mess that you came for, that you love, you so love. You're obsessed with them so much so that you would leave the 99 who are safe in your care to pursue them. And God, if we have ever harbored judgment or self-righteousness, God, would you forgive us and would you replace that with a spirit of humility that would see ourselves still as a sinner saved by grace who needs your grace every day just as much as we did the day we invited you into our lives. And God, help us to not withhold that grace from others. That we would be a conduit, Lord, that the more grace you pour into our lives, the more willing we would be to extend grace to those in our lives who still don't know you. Jesus, give us a heart for the one. Give us your heart. As we continue praying, I can't help but wonder if there are maybe some ones here today who if I were to ask you, if we were to sit down over a meal and say, where are you with God? Maybe your response would be, you know what, I'm the one. I'm far from God. Today that can change. You can be brought near to God through simple confession 
Scripture says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. To as many as believed him, those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. And if you want to be adopted into God's family and reunited with your heavenly father, with all heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're in the room, would you just boldly raise your hand so that I can lead you in a prayer? to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you're watching online, put up the hands up emoji in the comment section of whatever platform you're watching on. If you're a lost son or daughter who wants to be reunited into a relationship with your heavenly Father, don't hesitate. Shoot your hand up and let's pray together to welcome you back into God's family. That's what we're here for. I see that hand over here on the left. I'm proud of you, ma'am. Is there anybody else? That hand in the back. I see that hand on the right. Two hands over here. God bless you. Is there anybody else that's ready to come home and receive the extravagant love and grace of your heavenly father? I see that hand in the back. Well, church, I want to ask those of you who are already in the family to join those who have acknowledged their need for Jesus in this simple prayer. I don't want anybody praying alone, so say it out loud all together. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sin. I confess that I'm a sinner and I need you in my life. Thank you, Jesus, for not only dying for me, but then coming back from the dead to live forevermore. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me the strength and the power to live for you, follow you, serve you every day from this day forward. Jesus, I give my life to you. In your name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Church, can we put our hands together and make some noise to welcome those born into God's family today? Woo! That's what it's all about, guys. Listen, before I dismiss you, I just want to give some instructions to the, those of you who came here today ready to take your next step in faith by getting baptized. First of all, to those of you that just raised your hands to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, congratulations on the most important decision that you will ever make in your entire life. Welcome to the family. Welcome. And I want to ask you to do two things. First of all, if you could take the card in the seat back pocket in front of you and let us know about the decision that you made today, the green card that says, I have decided, because we want to follow up with you and we want to come alongside of you to help you continue to take next steps on this new journey as a follower of Jesus. We want to give you some things that will explain a little bit more about this new relationship and help you take some of those next steps. And one of those next steps happens to be taking place in about 10 minutes right outside these front doors. It's the step of publicly declaring our faith in Jesus Christ through baptism. Listen, baptism is a personal, public, priority profession of our partnership with Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. See, it's our way of identifying with Jesus who died for our sins. And when we go under the water, we are identifying with Christ that we are dying to our old man and all of its sinful ways. And like Jesus came out of that tomb, when we come out of the water, we are raised to new life in Christ, filled with the Spirit of God, made new by Jesus Christ. And listen, I've been preaching my whole life that baptism is a symbol, but I was challenged this summer while on vacation and visiting my sister-in-law's church that baptism is more than just a symbol. We can't miss this. Baptism, there is power in the 
step of obedience, the spiritual act of baptism, where the Holy Spirit does spiritual surgery in which he cuts off the old man and its sinful ways. We've got to see this. The foreshadowing of baptism happens in the Old Testament when we see the Israelites being saved from Egypt. They were saved. God delivered them. But then they were led to the face of the Red Sea where what was following them? Their past, Egypt, was following them. That which enslaved them and bound them and held them captive was following them. And God, through his power, did a miracle where he separated the waters. The Israelites walked across on dry ground, came out on the other side. But guess what didn't come out on the other side? Their past. The power of God put to death their past and everything that had held them captive. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we've got some people here that have been trying to follow Jesus, but are curious and wondering why they are still struggling with the same stuff they struggled with 10 years ago. Maybe it's because you never took the step to get baptized, where the Holy Spirit cuts off the old man. There is power in that spiritual act. And I want everyone to experience that today. And so listen, as a church, this is one of our most exciting Sundays of the entire year because we get to celebrate the step that those people who have realized their need for God's grace take to publicly declare their faith in Jesus. But so many people, once they realize that they should take that step, they're like, but I got baptized as a baby. I don't need to do that. I'm probably good, right? Well, listen, scripture teaches that Baptism happens after a person personally makes a decision for themselves to trust in Jesus for their salvation. And so while getting baptized as a baby might have been a great gesture on the part of your parents for what they wanted for your life, you have a responsibility as a believer, as a follower in Jesus, to decide for yourself that you're going to declare it publicly through baptism. You can look at it as a fulfillment for what your parents would have wanted for you. Other people say, well, you know what? It sounds great, but my faith is a private matter. And I would beg to differ. Faith might be a personal matter, but it was never meant to be private. Jesus died a very public death for you to win you and redeem you and said, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my father. So baptism is supposed to be public. And I would challenge you if you've never publicly been baptized to take that step today. And some of you might say, well, I didn't come ready. I didn't realize all this stuff and I, I didn't expect to get baptized today. I didn't sign up or register. Guess what? As a church, we are prepared for you and we want to remove every obstacle or barrier that would keep you from getting baptized today. And so when I dismiss you in a few moments, we've got bags and kits of clothes in, in the front foyer, on the outdoor foyer, where you can get changed into shorts, underwear, t-shirt, everything you need so you can get baptized and then change back into the clothes that you wore to church today. There is no reason for you to not take that step today if that's what the Holy Spirit is telling you to do. And so we're going to celebrate as a church. If you're not getting baptized today, I would encourage you to stick around and hang out so that we can celebrate and thank God for the life change that is happening here today. If you're new with us, yeah, let's give it up for those who are getting baptized. It's exciting. So listen, here's what I want to do. I want to dismiss you in groups. The first group of people I want to dismiss are those of you who are getting baptized today so that you can head to the bathrooms and go ahead and get changed uh, so that you're not waiting in line for that. Uh, so go ahead and get, get dismissed now. If you're new with us, don't forget to take that black card and turn that in so that we can give you a gift and so that we can bless somebody in our community with the gift of a warm meal. Uh, 
Parents, don't forget to take your kids, check them out of Kids Life before you gather around. And so we're going to get started in about five minutes. To the rest of you, I love you. Let's get ready to celebrate what God is doing in our church. God bless. I'll see you.